The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Since the publication of the first volume of his massive novel, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, in 2009, Carl Ove Nausgaard has become a household name in his native Norway and a loved and hated literary figure around the world. Thanks to that book, which totals six volumes, plus another four-volume work titled After the Four Seasons, Nausgaard has drawn comparisons ranging from Marcel Proust to a blogger on steroids. For some, he is the avatar of a new kind of writing or a new kind of novel, a pioneer who has advanced the novel into territory perfectly suited for the 21st century. For others, he is a hack, a charlatan, a navel-gazing fraud who barely deserves the title of novelist, let alone the acclaim or esteem that many have accorded him. What do we make of Karl Ove Nausgaard? Why should we give his books our time? What's the best way to read him? And can we strip away the Sturmundrang surrounding his books and see them with any kind of clarity? Luckily, we at the History of Literature podcast have a great reader of Nausgaard, our old friend Mike Palindrome, who's here today to help us sort through one of the most polarizing figures in contemporary world literature. Carl Ove Nausgaard with Mike Palindrome today on the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here to join us. I'm fresh off my annual Burns Supper. Sometime I'm going to have to do an episode on Rabbi Burns and maybe on Burns Night and the Burns Suppers. They remind me a little of Rilke in his poem, Torso of an Archaic Apollo, with its great finishing line, You must change your life. Burns Night does that for me. I must change my life. I know it. I know I must do it. I feel the piercing beauty of the statue telling me it is so, just as I feel the condemnation of Rabbi Burns leading by example in his poetry, not his personal life, and maybe not even in his poetry, but the themes of his poetry, the themes, the call to arms, the longing for humans to be better, to be brothers and sisters, to connect, to elevate the simple to something fundamentally good, to avoid cynicism. Well, I'm stepping all over the future episode on Rebby Burns now, but I will say, eating some haggis, the great chieftain of the pudding race, or some vegetarian haggis, which I kind of prefer. <laughs> One of my companions at Burns Night, at the Burns Supper last night, a young lad of, I don't know, eight or nine, confided in me, did you know... There are ingredients in haggis that are illegal to buy in America. <laughs> ah, yes, some things are better left unspoken, dear boy. Where were we? Carl Ove Nausgaard today, born in 1968. He's 51 now, looking like a haggard Bjorn Borg, writing like a cross between Balzac and Samuel Pepys. What a sharp break he is with the history of literature. There's a general course... Then there's him, and we don't really know what to do with him. It seems we were building toward him. We were blurring memoir and fiction 
and we were preferring our fiction with strong memoir-like characteristics. We wanted to know more about the author. We demanded it. We wanted to know if the fiction was something that really happened to the author. We put the author on shows like Oprah and asked them to talk about how the book related to something they themselves went through. The New Yorker would run a fiction issue and all the side pieces would be not about fiction. They would be about the writer remembering things in their lives. Story got shunted over to television, to film, to places where storytelling wasn't regarded with quizzical and even cynical glances. Storytelling can exist in places like that, on channels like Lifetime and USA, but in novels, in writing, not sure it can, not as much, not as much anymore. In children's books, maybe, in fantasy books, we accept story. But in novels, there's a big sigh, there's an impatience, and there's a feeling of stop writing, stop making things up. Nobody believes this. Nobody believes in this. That was the course of things to our skeptical brains, and suddenly Nausgaard came and put his works out there, and we had to decide. Wow. Here it is. We okay with this? Do we hate it? What's the alternative? Where do we go from here? So, should you read him? Reject him? How much time in our busy lives do we give to Carl Ove Nausgaard? Mike Palindrome is here to help. But first, we're going to hear from a listener in Brazil. A friend in Brazil, she calls herself, and I agree. And she will stake out a position very different from Nausgaard without intending to. That wasn't her goal or anything, but I'm putting that on her. I'm reading her email and interpreting it in that way. It hit me at the right time to do this. So let's take a quick break, then hear from our listener, then have our conversation with Mr. Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, about the Norwegian nabob of nattering nail... Had a full head of steam there. Let's try this again. About the Norwegian nabob of nattering, navel-gazing, and novel asterisk writing, with the asterisk containing a single question mark that somehow takes 50 pages to get through. Don't try to figure that out. Just go with it. Maybe it will make sense at some point, and maybe not. We're thinking for ourselves now, seeing what's out there and what we can take, and assessing whether it's useful. We are changing our lives, not because we'd like to, not because we want to, but because we must. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Subject, Brazilian Friend Dear Jack, Drop by just to tell you how much I appreciate your podcast. I came across the show thanks to my passion for Proust. I was looking for something about him in Spotify and found History of Literature. Since then, it has been my company at lunch. I usually eat alone with you. I love your passion and your taste. Proust, Chekhov, Monroe. I'm a journalist and live in Porto Alegre, south of Brazil, close to Borges' Buenos Aires. We have great authors you should try to read. Machado de Assis, Sontag loved him. Clarice Lispector, Guimaras Rosa. Avoid Paulo Coelho, though. Best wishes from Brazil, Claudia. Well, dear Claudia, this email has given me more pleasure than you know. I, too, could use good company, and I feel as if by providing it, I'm a little less lonely, even though you and I have never met. I'm glad to hear you have a passion for Proust and Chekhov and Monroe, three in my personal pantheon, as you already know. And I do want to read those great Brazilian authors you mention, even if I don't know how to pronounce their names, all of them. (laughs) My apologies, and my episode on Borges has been in the works for years. I've only touched on him so far, but a deep dive is long overdue. Best, Jack. Something else moved me about that email. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's the idea of having a friend. So simple in the title. So understated. Not, I feel like a friend. I know that seems odd. Not self-conscious like that. Not, hey, you probably hear this a lot, Jack, but I consider you a friend, even though it's a one-way dialogue. I understand those sentiments. I feel them myself. That's how I would write the email if I were writing to a podcaster. I'm not judging. But something about that subject line, Brazilian friend, as if it says, you have a friend, Jack. I am your friend. A Brazilian friend. It's a wonderful kind of thing. That subject line (laughs) made me feel like weeping when I first saw it in my email inbox. Why do I have this friend? Why am I this lucky? It's because of literature. Because I've been on a great search, and my search has taken me deep into Proust and Chekhov and Monroe and so many others, and I've tried to take what I can from them, not just for knowledge, not just for intellectual pleasure, but in an effort to make sense of the world, to take the greatest thinkers, the greatest feelers, is that the word? (laughs) The most emotionally astute people on the planet, 
the Chekhovs, the Alice Munros, and to open myself up to them, to engage with them, and to come away from it with something, anything that can help. Do I get more complicated? Yes. More cynical? Sometimes. More optimistic and hopeful? Yes and yes. Do I grow weary of literature? Sometimes. Of life? That too. Do I feel energized and ready to take on big new projects? To squeeze life for every drop? To wrestle with darkness as well as light? To understand? To hate? To love? To live? Yes, I do. I truly do. I get all that from reading. And now I know there's a soul in Brazil, of all places, one of the few major countries I've never visited. There is a person there eating lunch and listening, and that person is on a similar quest, a similar journey to find a kind of meaning in literature, along with me and thousands of others who are listening to this podcast, and millions of others who are searching without maybe having found this podcast yet, and maybe they never will, but they're part of this too. There's a person alone in Brazil who's not alone because I'm there with her. And that person is named Claudia. And that person is my friend, Brazilian friend. And I am grateful and touched and honored to know it. Oh boy, another attempt at getting to something essential. Probably went a little overboard, but that's okay. Why stay in the boat when it is leaking and on fire? Maybe we should all go overboard and take our chances in the water, even when it's deep. Especially when it's deep. Carlo Vinausgaard, after this. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, whose own Kampf has been third, perhaps only, to Adolf Hitler and our subject of today. Mike is the president of the Literature Supporters Club, and he's here to talk about Norwegian author Carl Ove Nausgaard, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, whose works include <laughs> the six volumes of Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, and four books named after each of the four seasons. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. Do you say Ove or Ove for his middle name? Um, I say Ove. Ove. I think, uh, okay. Yeah, I think I think Norwegians and Swedes tend to pronounce there's there's no uh, silent vowels. Right. Okay. So I said you were here to talk about Nausgaard, and I might also have said you were here to make the case for Nausgaard. Uh, let me just let me just give you a little bit of uh, where I stand on this. So, as mm-hmm. you know. I tend to uh, go to bed early and get up around four to do my podcasting. And you like to uh, stay up late. And so we usually tape these things late at night. And I'm usually exhausted and tired. And the day is full of things. I've got a lot on my plate to do. I've got a lot of uh, uh, demands on my time. And here you are recommending this guy, Nausgaard, who's got uh, <laughs> hundreds to the thousands of pages of, of books. He's like the, the modern-day Proust 
some will say. And uh, I think, oh, boy, the idea of it just uh, exhausts me. I have dipped my toe in the water, but do I really want to take on the project of swimming out to the island or or treading water in his ocean or whatever the right metaphor is? So, who Wait, so is have he? You, yeah. Have you finished? Where, 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 where did you pause? I was- I would say pause. I'm very optimistic. (laughs) I would say I've read uh, about 100 pages of books, uh, one, two, and three. I keep jumping around. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to stop reading book one, and then I heard that book one was sort of not his best, so I started book two, and then another time I checked out book three at the library just to see if I could get into that one. Maybe it was book four. So I've sort of mm-hmm. I've dipped in. I've also read a bunch of his essays when they come out in, uh, uh, I guess, the New York Times Magazine or whatever it was that was running his essays. So I kind of have a good feel for his prose, but I've never done the full immersion, which I think is kind of, uh, people will say is the only way to really experience what it's like. But tell us about what the the world is like. Who is he, and what is his project? So I read my struggle twice. Mm. Um, All and, six books. Well, I'm actually I I read uh, five books, and then I was waiting for the sixth book to come out. So while I was waiting for the sixth book, I started to reread the first five. So I read the first five twice and I'm reading the sixth book right now, slowly. I tend to read his book slowly. I think, you know, uh, you can read it quickly. And I I know a lot of people who have, and I know a a lot of people who've paused and taken a a year off or, um, well, he writes quickly. He writes quickly. He, I, I think he doesn't really edit that much. Yeah. He has a very plain style that shifts into philosophy mm. where it almost doesn't matter what happened before or after. There's just like this this philosophical flashback or pause. But I mean, the way I think of it is the emotional accessibility and mm. the relevance to people today. Uh, I, I think he's the most important writer today. The most important writer today. Yeah. I think, you know, and <laughs> people like, I think he's opened the door for people like Rachel Cusk mm. and, you know, uh, Jenny Diskey and Patty Smith. I mean, people are looking for Nowscard like writing. Yeah. Now. So why is that? I mean, I guess it's, if I were to speculate what you mean here, it's that he has basically stripped away a lot of the artifice of writing and he ends up, um, you know, you get the sense that he's intelligent and that he's well-read and it's it's not like you're just reading complete drivel. But on the right. other hand, it seems like the speed at which he writes and the amount of the prose that he generates allows him to lose some of the self-consciousness that you sometimes see in writers as they write and then revise and rewrite and, and maybe... Uh, you can kind of see their decision-making process as a writer. He takes all of that away, and so you end up. It feels like what you're reading is is kind of an unfiltered look at his life and at his his mind as he's experiencing life. Yeah, I mean, I think what I think that his type of writing is actually really hard to do, and it, it, he's an incredibly charming voice. 
to spend time with. Like mm. in in yeah. book two, he describes his daughter. He says, shyness appeared when Vanya was seven months old and manifested itself through her shutting her eyes as if asleep whenever a stranger approached. She, she simply shut her eyes as if she was asleep. And then later as she grows up, she tells him that she doesn't want to go to the nursery. And he, he, he feels like it's a transitional phase, so he accompanies her, and she doesn't want to play with the kids. She wants to sit on his lap. And he says, I thought it would be best to throw her in at the deep end, just walk away from the nursery and leave her to fend for herself. But neither they, uh, the workers at the nursery, nor my wife would hear of such brutality. So I sat on the chair in the corner of the room with Vanya on my lap, surrounded by children at play with the sun blazing outside. But the weather became gradually more autumnal as the days passed. In the break for a snack consisting of apple and pear slices served by the staff in the yard, Vanya would only take part if we sat 10 meters away from the others. And when I agreed to that with an apologetic smile on my face, it was no surprise for me, for this was my way of relating to other people. How had she, only two and a half years old, managed to pick this up? Hmm. I mean, there's stuff like that throughout where he is such, uh, he's so aware of his flaws. Hmm. Right, and when he sees in other people, he sometimes attacks them, and other times he realizes that he's like that too. He goes to there's a fifty page uh, children's birthday party he goes to, and he just each parent he meets, he finds them incredibly boring, <laughs> and, and it's it's the funniest. I mean, it, it you know I think any parent can relate to this. Not that yeah, you know people are incredibly boring but the setting is such that it's really hard to kind of show your best side yeah you know you're you're a parent of a young kid you're tired it's this kind of moronic birthday party setting and he Um, he comes across as really honest that you 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 feel like you can trust him because he's he's so devoted to the project of of being honest that you don't feel like he's making up these characters in order to, because he as a novelist wants to make them do certain things, that he's more concerned with uh, describing his own feelings and his own reactions to things that uh, you do feel like you're, you're getting a glimpse into his actual personality and his actual, you know, his very human uh, response to the world. But he's, quirky enough and interesting enough and he's got these weird <laughs> these weird passions and and irritations and all of this that that it kind of keeps things surprising he he's he's very very charismatic i mean he says like a large part of my relationship with my daughter heidi was based on me carrying her it was the basis of our relationship I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, and then he says, oh, I love this part where he says, um, all my adult life, I've kept a distance from other people. It has been my way of coping because I've become so incredibly close to others and my thoughts and feelings, of course, they only have to look away dismissively for a storm to break inside me. Hmm. That closeness naturally informs my relationship with children, too. And that is what allows me to sit down and play with them. But as they lack any veneer of courtesy and decency that adults have, this also means they can freely penetrate the outer bulwark 
orc of my personality and then wreak as much havoc as they wish on me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the keys to him, isn't it? That it's like sometimes when you get these long uh, novels where people are describing the people around them and everything, you get the feeling that they're they're doing it because that way they can be kind of the the king and they can be the master of the world or they could always get the last word and they can always, you know, that it allows them to be sort of the hero of their own story. And with him, you read it and you think, well, these people can hurt him. They, they He's capable of being wounded. And the next person who shows up on the scene might be the one who kind of gives him the withering remark that I, as a reader, are sort of starting to feel toward this guy is like, why don't you get over yourself? Or why don't you, why are you uh, so mean to people or something like that? Like he, he can take those blows and he's honest about it when it pierces into him. Yeah, I mean, he's very, very sympathetic. Uh, even when he's committing adultery, revealing stuff about his his family, his wife, is um, attacking friends for being like, you know, for whatever flaws they show. I mean, the 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 struggle, you know, for people who haven't read it, the struggle, his struggle is making art while being a parent. That's mm. that's what it comes down to. I mean, and he says stuff like this he says um now he he has three kids i think he has three kids in the novel and then he has his fourth in um by the time book six comes out but he says um he's describing being at a kid's birthday party the life around me was not meaningful i always longed to be away from it so the life i led was not my own i tried to make it mine this was my struggle because of course i wanted it but i failed the longing for something else undermined all my efforts what was the problem? And he says that having family should make you happy, but being happy was not his goal hmm. because being happy is not meaningful. And I mean, it's a little bit of a, you know, he's setting up the the novel and, but I think there's a little bit of truth in that, you know, the, that contentment is not more than a moment and that, you know, you, you, you have to go on and do something else. Yeah. So, so he's been criticized for this title, Mein Kampf, which follows the Hitler's. Yeah. Uh, are you? Uh, where do you stand on that? You know, as someone who's read Mein Kampf and just <laughs> finds that book to be so dull, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's almost like he's taken back those two simple words. Mm. Mm-hmm. I often forget that it has the same title. But, you know, again, it's different in Germany. I don't know what it's called in Germany. I guess it's called Mein Kampf. Yeah. It, it, the books are so funny. And the books are so, yeah, so much about his own neuroses and his incredible shyness. I mean, he goes to a dinner party. Book five, each book is has a different setting. So book one is about his father's death. And then book two is about his breakup with his first wife, uh, Tanya. Um, and meeting his second wife, Linda. And then book three is about uh, growing up with his brother and, you know, a flashback, a very long flashback to the father's uh, strict discipline. The fa- The father was, I mean, he may have had some kind of men- mental illness. Like he, the father didn't like the sound of water in the bathroom sink going down the drain. So there's this, <laughs> there's this incredible 
there's this incredible passage where his older brother, uh, Carlo Ve's older brother, Yeng, Yengve, would in the morning wash his face and the water would start to drain and the father would just scream. So Yengve would leave, would stopper up the sink and leave the dirty water. And then Carlo Ve, when he woke up, he would go to the sink and rather than drain and get yelled at, he would wash his face in the brother's dirty water. I mean, this is a, <laughs> this is the kind of and the fathers forbid them from cutting bread. In the morning, they, he would get a loaf of bread. You were not allowed to cut the bread. Uh, I mean, it was you know, it's an, it's just an incredible portrait of this father. So, yeah. book four, book four is um, kind of my favorite, which is in southern southern Norway is where the intelligentsia are. So, mm -hmm. if you graduate from high school in southern Norway you can teach, immediately teach high school in northern Norway. And so when he was 19, he went to the north to a uh, small fishing town and he taught high school to 16-year-olds. And I think that is, you know, just the most entertaining of the books. Uh, book five, just to finish this off, book five is uh, about him attending uh, the, uh, an MFA program in, in Bergen, and mm. that is very entertaining also. Mm. So, and book six is about the publishing of, the publication of, of book one. Right, and it was a huge, uh -huh. like a runaway bestseller, and Norway is is not that big uh, yeah. population-wise, and but it was read by, I don't know, do you have a figure there? It was something like 60% of the country or something must have bought it and read it, it was like, yeah. Um, you know, it became almost like a, a gossip column or something where people were talking about who was who in the book and, and um, you know, Nausgaard's life. And it became, he became kind of a celebrity. Um, so book six, I guess, takes that on and what that experience was like. Yeah, I mean, his his father's brother, Karlovi's uncle. Um, so part of Parlove's personality is this incredible shyness and this, he, as a child, he cried incredibly easily. Like if, if his cracker cracked in half, he would cry. I mean, he, you know, as a teenager, I mean, he would cry over nothing. Mm. Um, so when the, when the books were about to come out, he sent advanced copies to his brother, his mother, his uncle, his first wife, his, you know, shared it with his, his current wife. And, Everyone generally was flattered to be in the book, to be in the books. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, that that's kind of a typical reaction I've heard from a lot of authors. And, you know, they kind of overlook the, the, the real portrait and they're just flattered to be in a book. But the uncle threatened the lawsuit. And so the, the book six is a lot about, you know, dealing with that. And, uh, you know, the uncle accused him of making stuff up. And mm. I mean, so the, 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 that's part of the interesting thing about these books. They're categorized as fiction because, um, as as he himself put it, because I went to hear him speak, nobody can remember all of this. Mm. It just, you know, you, you would naturally fill in stuff right. that you couldn't remember based on, you know, a, 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 you know, a composite of things that, you know, someone close to you has said. Yeah. Um and I think the the thing about these books that is so hypnotic um, is that 
the details he fills in, I, I sometimes I feel like I can't. He can't even tell what is real and what's fake. Mm. <laughs> what? <laughs> like the dialogue, the dialogue has to be fake. Oh, because it's, it's sort of stylized. Yeah, it, but it's so. It it just seems so true. Yeah. to each of the characters that you just feel like, well, they, they probably said something like that. Well, if what he remembers is his own reaction and his own yeah. emotion when it was happening, then he just needs to invent something. You know, he get he probably gets into the state of mind and thinks about what he's trying to recreate. And then the words probably come to him because they would flow naturally out of his emotional state. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, there there are a lot of hints in his writing about, his own, uh, you know, what what it means to to undertake this kind of project. He he says in book one, meaning requires content. Content requires time. Time requires resistance. T- knowledge is distance. Knowledge is stasis. And knowledge is the enemy of meaning. Mm. I'm not going to say that the book the books are uh, universally engaging. There are definitely moments where you just think like, wow, this is incredibly straightforward <laughs> i mean you know you could call it dull i mean james wood you could call it dull <laughs> james wood james is it wood dull has, james wood has my favorite quote about these books he says the books are not boring but even when it's boring i was interested yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> and i get that there's going to be highs and lows but part of me is like oh why should I read 50 pages that bore me just yeah. to get to the good stuff? Why not just reread Tolstoy or Proust or Saul Bellow? I, th- I think it, it speaks more to um, the condition of trying to make art today. Mm. Then th- that's what I always return to is that it really is. That's, that's a struggle that so many people like I have a ongoing conversation with a friend of mine who we joke like, you know, the one generation creates all the money through finance, a finance job or something, you know, lucrative as an entrepreneurial. Then the second generation, the, then the next generation creates art. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then the third generation is so disgusted by the, the fickleness and the struggle of creating art that they turn to something more stable, like a job that makes money in finance. And then yeah. the fourth generation is so bored by the you know the monotony and the conventional life that their parents led because they were so stable that they create art and my friend says he actually thinks it's two generations of finance and one generation of art (laughs) because art is so hard to do today Mm. yeah you know everything costs more today i mean the, the 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 cost of living has multiplied so much compared to the reward of art yeah. Well, one thing uh, that I had heard, um, and, and especially when you talk about writing, because music and things like that might be a little bit different. But, you know, I had always heard that uh, there, there was a uh, there's been a decline in the use of omniscient narrators. 
And mm-hmm. people have suggested that that's because we just got to be where we were less comfortable with the idea of omniscience. We were sort of, you know, it seemed like you're assuming too much about how people who come from a different station in life would think or would respond to something in order to say some universally sweeping comments. And, and just the whole stance of omniscience is something that we've, we're not as comfortable with anymore. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, I've got this comparison here that a writer in The Nation made between John Updike's prose and Nausgaard's prose. And the, the critic mm-hmm. in The Nation really was trying to compare Nausgaard unfavorably with Updike. But mm-hmm. I had a different response. So these he gave two passages of the first time that the uh, reader is introduced to a young woman. And in Updike, mm-hmm. the description is... A quote, she is serious, a serious, small-faced animal sniffing out her new lair, end quote. And Mm -hmm. the point he was making was, uh, that the critic was making was, we don't just see her, we see into her. You know, that that gives us something about her, something about her personality. And then here's the the description that Nausgaard gives in his prose. He's talking about a girl that he liked at age 11, his first serious crush, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. saturated with emotion. It's an experience you could imagine would be this sort of heightened moment in his life. And the, the prose here is, quote, she wasn't very tall and she was wearing a pink jacket, a light blue skirt and thin white stockings. Her nose was small, her mouth large, and she had a little cleft in her chin, end quote. And so the critic was basically saying, in Uptake, we don't just see the girl, we see into her, but, mm-hmm. uh, and that Nausgaard doesn't do that. We almost see her like a, a photograph, and it's just sort of the plain details, and everything's on the surface, and there's no artistry to it. But what I took from that was actually uh, paring it down kind of does something more for me in a way, because when I read you know, Updike saying she is serious, a serious small-faced animal sniffing out her new lair. I see Updike writing that. I see his consciousness. And I part of me is thinking, oh, here's John Updike coming up with a way to describe this. And yeah. when I read Nausgaard, and he says she wasn't very tall, and she was wearing a pink jacket, a light blue skirt, and thin white stockings. I'm not sitting there thinking about Nausgaard, the writer. I'm thinking about Nausgaard, the person who's encountering this. And so when when I was talking before about how at one point maybe we moved away from omniscience, we no longer were comfortable with it, I'm wondering if Nausgaard is appealing to people who think we've kind of moved away from fiction in a way or the the techniques of fiction or the the artifice of it, that it's, it's uh, something we're all familiar with now. We've all read, you know, mm-hmm. the the uh, prose stylist, we all kind of know how fiction works and we all know kind of the tricks and we know uh, yeah. the ways that it kind of deceives us with by ref- the way it describes certain things. And, and we're all, it, it sort of had to double down and double down again and double down again in order to be new and interesting. And so it maybe got a little more and more uh, clever and, and you end up with this, you end up with this prose that mm-hmm. is just seems really far away from real life, and it seems really close to the kind of prose that writers might enjoy more than readers. And Nausgaard mm-hmm. seems to be returning to something kind of elemental about the experience of fiction. Is that um, yeah? Is that what you see when you read Nausgaard, or is that what it feels like when you read Nausgaard? Yeah, I mean, I think there are all these strands that don't um, connect mm-hmm. that feels really like 
um, I mean, I hate to say this, it's not, it feels kind of epic or profound. And I think, you know, the, I, I agree with you, like gone are the days where you see something and you come back to it because the person lost, you know, a, 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 an object and they find it and it has meaning for them. It, it's not satisfying for a reader. Mm. Like we've seen it before. We've seen yeah. like the important object. We've seen the important person, the disappearance of a person that comes back to haunt them. I mean, it doesn't, it, you know, we, we we're more, we're more demanding. Um, I mean, I, I really believe that people, maybe there are less readers, but the people who are reading are more serious because they're fighting to protect literature. Mm. And so, I mean, there, there's a, there's a scene in, um, book, I don't even know what book it is, book five, where he goes to, um, I love the flashbacks. So it, the, he goes over the same scenes uh, a couple of times and he he starts book two he cheats on his wife they agree to separate temporarily but he he's already had has his eyes on you know his future wife linda who's a poet and so he, his first wife tanya had to read about all these details in book two mm. she's a journalist in real life and she was surprised and hurt by the details. So you get that's that's a little bit of the background. But then in book five, he returns to how we first met Tanya. And he says this. We stroll down. He, 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 was, he, he and Tanya spend time with her parents for four days. Uh, we stroll down the narrow gravel path through the forest to the lake. And this is a thing I love in his books. Like there are forests everywhere. You just go into the forest. Um, where we went to a little shop. She made us coffee, and I asked her about her childhood. She told me she had had TB and spent many months in a sanitarium high above a fjord, the cure that had been to get as much sun as possible. So the women had sat in chairs on the first floor veranda and the men on the ground floor veranda because they were topless, as they say today, she said with a laugh. And then she went on to tell us what it was like when she returned home. There was a stigma attached to the illness and the tan you got at sanitariums. Everyone like Tore. Um, Tore is uh, Tanya's uh, mother. I think of the mother. Okay. We went back up and carried on with our work. A horse stuck its muzzle through the window while we were sitting there. We gave it some sugar cubes and an apple. In the evening, we sat outside drinking beer and smoking, surrounded by the roar of a waterfall from the forest with the snow on the mountaintops on the other side, shining in the glow from the setting sun. And they're just passages like this where, yeah, you know, you, you really feel like he could be writing, you know, about any place, but, right. you know, we, we sort of have to slow our lives down to really see what we, what, what's around us. I mean, it just, it, it's at once, uh, like very, very generic, but also incredibly grounded in this, like I, I think of it as almost like a utopian culture. Yeah. So, um, do, do you have to, re I mean, I don't know that you can get the right effect out of Nausgaard if you read uh, five pages and see if you like it. I, I feel like you have to be I, like, yeah. you know. I, I, probably, I probably read him in like, 50, 50 page. Yeah. 
you know, segments. But I, I, I have, I, I know people who've read like a book in three days, which yeah. um, I think you, you really get fully immersed, but I think you miss a lot of the stuff. Mm. Um, okay. But I, but I mean, he wants to, you're talking about where you, you keep reading it because you know, you're, you're in it and you're going to return to that world. But I guess what I mean is, do you need to slow time down in order to um, really immerse yourself in the experience in order to gain from it what it is that you're talking about as being the gains? No, I mean, I think you just have to read carefully, even mm. though uh, so much of the the details um, are quotidian. You have to read slowly because th there are these moments where um uh you know yeah he, he becomes very idealistic or he becomes very angry and that's interesting um, because maybe what you're saying is if you read if you try to read too much at once you'll just grow impatient with him but if you're reading like five pages a night or something and looking forward to it and then you want to go along for the ride with him as as if you're kind of living a piece of his life in one one piece at a time you'll get more out of it yeah, I mean, I I definitely think there's something about reading it in order, but I've also had friends read book one and then jump to book four, which is what I was telling you, the, the teaching in high school in um, the remote north of Norway, because I think that's almost like a standalone book. And then you can read right after that the MFA uh, years, because I think, again, that's like a little bit of a standalone book. Interestingly, a, a lot of people can love book two, mm. which I I don't really consider the strongest book. So. Mm. Okay, so uh, I've got a game prepared for you. <laughs> okay. uh, the game is called Fair or Unfair. So I am going to read a quote about Nausgaard, and you tell me if the quote is fair or unfair. Mm -hmm. Okay, ready? Uh, yeah. Number one, quote, Nausgaard is Proust for stupid people, end quote. <laughs> fair or unfair? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously a big fan of, of Nausgaard, so I'm going to say uh, unfair. I mean, I, I, I love Proust, but I think he is be increased, becoming less and less readable. Yeah, well, Nausgaard is easier to read than Proust. Yeah. Uh, but he's maybe a little more like a blogger than, a, uh, you know, the high pros of Proust. Um, now, Scared doesn't mind using cliches or just the sort of simple prose, I guess. I, I think the difference between him and a blogger, though, is a blogger, you don't remember him. You know, you don't remember a blog post. Mm. And you'll remember Now, Scared. I think if you if you read all six books... <laughs> you, you'll 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 never you'll never forget certain right well if, if you read a hundred thousand words by a blogger you'd probably remember that too yeah but it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to i don't think i mean any self-respecting blogger that can blog that much would have written a book <laughs> i mean you look at like the wonket i mean she eventually wrote a novel you know every every blogger i think blogs are it's good that people are writing, but they they trail off. Yeah, they don't they don't really connect to yeah. 
previous posts. I mean, the thing about Proust that, I mean, I loved reading Proust, but he's essentially for the rich. I mean, the more yeah. as I grow older, I mean, he, you know. Yeah, he's a bit know, of a snob. And reading the Proust book by his nanny, or I forget who it is, Monsieur yeah. Proust by Celeste. Yep. yep. I, 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 I couldn't finish it because the descriptions of his eating habits and his. He's, his, he's kind of precious. Oh, I mean, you. you, you, you <laughs> You, and the way he spent money on flowers and bellhops and, you know, he's, he's kind of like a cheap, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you know, John, I mean, he's like, he's trying to get, <laughs> he's just trying to get laid. I mean, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I have no doubt that, uh, I would have been infuriated by him if I had actually known him in real life. That, that I would have found it. We would have had nothing in common and I would have found him to be, uh, sort of intolerable but, but here, the here, the character yeah. of marcel though is totally different yeah. for me but here's the here's the thing about proust why proust and nausgaard can coexist mm. they're both wholly original mm. right and they are incredibly hard to compare yeah. because you know you know to me it you know they 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 really do their own thing they're they're kind of in alternate universes so yeah. Like we just talked about, we just talked about Saul Bellow and you mentioned his uh, best friend who had also written a novel about an experience they had both had. And you think with that best friend, well, I don't need to read this because I've read, I've read Saul Bellow's take on this, which is, you know, yeah. 10 times better, but you don't yeah. get the feeling, well, I don't need to read Nausgaard because I've read Proust or I don't need to read Proust because I've read Nausgaard because they're very different they have very different uh, goals and very different approaches and the style is so different. And the, it's really all about these two individuals and they are very different people. So I see what you mean by coexisting. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I, I do think everyone should read Proust, but I find that it, more, more and more it's falling on deaf ears. <laughs> so. Well, I uh, just got a nice email. Maybe I will read that to start the show from a, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a listener, of a friend. She calls herself our Brazilian friend. And she found the History of Literature podcast because she was looking for someone who also enjoyed Proust. And she found her episode on Proust. And she said, now I listen to you as my lunchtime companion. It's just uh, <laughs> you and me eating lunch here. So uh, there are still some some Proustians out there. Okay, back to the game, fair or unfair. Number two, Nausgaard is, quote, the master of banality, end quote. I think that's fair. That's fair. I think, that's, yeah. I think that that's a good moment to talk about the Seasons Quartet. Ah, okay. Which, um, yep, you what know, are those but, about? So they're, they're, he, when his wife was pregnant with their unborn daughter, he decided to write essays on everyday objects, uh, one or two page essays mm -hmm. uh, for her and little letters to her. And I enjoyed trying to find stuff to enjoy in his The Seasons Quartet. <laughs> um, I, 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 and when I did find something... Um, I, it reminded me so much of my struggle, so I'm yeah. not sure I'm a good judge of this, but I, I I enjoyed a lot more 
his little primer on Edward uh, Munch, so much longing and so little space. Mm. Um, I think that's a great book about, you know, he was an art history major. He, that's his background. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his eye and his knowledge of art history is exceptional. And he, he's actually curated a couple of exhibitions in, um, in continental Europe, yeah. and he's been asked because um, he writes so well about art. So that's one of the things I was going to ask you: is if you trusted his insights into anything in particular like that? Because one of the things about reading big books is you kind of have to be on board with, you know, for Proust, it's it's painting and cathedrals and the things that matter to him that he's going to do these uh, kind of essays on. You kind of have to feel like. Either they, um, you know, that it's a subject that's interesting, but also that they're kind of a reliable uh, essayist on those topics. Um, I, th- so. I think, yeah, I mean, I think you you definitely get that. Um, you, he gains your trust because he'll say stuff like, you know, he he feeds his 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 son at in the high chair, and his son kind of looks at him. He looks at his son, and he's like. You know, his son is cute, but then I'm also really bored. Mm. And there's something about that where, you know, being a parent can be very boring. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, there are long stretches where you're just like, what do I do with myself? Because, you know, I, I'm, in, in three seconds, I'm going to have to clean up something, you know? Yeah. And there's a description in book six um, where he describes the front hall of his apartment and that they had these shelves and the kids, every time they find something, they they don't know where to put it. They put it on the shelf. So it's become this like he calls it the coral reef of objects. And the kids freak out if you try to throw anything out. And it's just the perfect description of a lot of front halls mm. of people's apartments with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> and you you know, and he then at the end of it he says Oh, and his wife was away visiting some friends and he's like, well, he's better. He has to clean some stuff because she's going to like make a comment. And he says, why, why, why do relationships get ruined because of house, household work? Mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you get this, you know, real comic, bittersweet, you know, realization that it's really true. Like, yeah. you know, there's so much arguing about, you know, the front hall closet. I mean, it's like, <laughs> but sometimes I feel like sometimes these epiphanies that he has are less, uh, you know, he'll also deliver epiphanies as if they're sort of momentous, but they seem like they're things like, um, I tell my daughter she should look both ways before crossing the street because it's better to be safe than sorry, you know, something like that. And you just think, ah, why am I reading this? Like it's a big revelation. <laughs> Let me. I, uh, oh, I guess ahead. that you know. I, I mean, there there are moments like that, but then there are moments <laughs> like, you know, he his brother falls in love. He falls in love with a girl, and his brother starts to date her. And he, I mean, this is a, a, a and then later, I mean, he's he's heartbroken, but he's a he's a teenager, but then later he introduces his brother to his wife who was his girlfriend at the time. And his brother is clearly more charming than Carl Ove. <laughs> and Carl Ove sits there all night, not talking, 
in his head, imagining what's going, this connection. Clearly there's a connection between his girlfriend and his brother. And he goes to the bathroom and there's a teaser, spoiler alert, in case people you know, decide to read it, um, to pause here. But uh, he goes to the bathroom and he looks in the mirror and there's a small piece of glass on the bathroom sink. And he starts kind of pressing it against his cheek and starts cutting his face. Mm. And the more the red comes out, he dabs it clean and then he starts cutting his face more. And then he goes back to the, to the bar where they're all seated and at some point, his girlfriend just starts screaming because she can see the blood all over his face. Mm. I mean, it's, I think every, every book has two or three moments like that. That is so much <laughs> about, you know, right. is just how flawed he is and how flawed all of us are and the way we're trying to kind of prove that we're different from everyone else. So when you're reading it, do you, you, it sort of takes your breath away when you get to that passage and then you start to realize there's going to be one of those every few hundred pages. And so you sort of are, are that's part of the experience that, you know, you're on the roller coaster and you're, uh, you might have long stretches where you're just riding up and then uh, the plummeting down is going to, you know, it's around the corner. They, you know, they, there's so much in between mm-hmm. that, keeps you going yeah. that, you know, you, you don't feel like, oh, it's, it's only just about those big moments. I mean, yeah. there are all these little things about like, his, you know, his personal life. I mean, there's so much sex in the books. Hmm. Not that that should be a reason to read it, but um, there's so much masturbation. There's so much honesty about masturbation and sex. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And um, I think the the portrait of adolescence, the adolescent male, is one of a kind. Okay, fair or unfair? Uh, Nausgaard is brilliant but frustrating. Uh, I mean, I think that's unfair. You'd say he's brilliant, but uh, I, you don't, I don't think he's frustrating? I don't, I don't think he's frustrating at all. <laughs> I think okay. if, any, if anything, it, it can make a, a lot of other... Uh, books frustrating to read. Mm, interesting. Because, because I, I, I almost think sometimes Nascar takes the place of uh, conversations with real people. Yeah. And uh, TV and movies. Yeah. Because the way you want to relax with a TV show or movie at the end of a day, it's you. You can just read Nascar, and it's it's more satisfying. Yeah. Right. But and on the other hand, then you pick up something else afterwards, and you think, "Why is this so stylized and overwritten? Why are why yeah. are they, um, you know, why do why do they agonize?" When you describe that passage of the uh, like looking at the mountains in the distance and stuff, I I just thought Updike would never have written a passage like that without having something new and interesting that he would insert some adjective or some description of the shape or something that would kind of be almost like saying, this is why I'm a writer and you're not. This is how I earn my keep is to describe this in a way that's never been described this way before. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he, he's a, Nascar is a big fan of Beckett and I think you can Mm, tell that there's a lot of, you know, sparseness. 
I smoked a cigarette and I was out of cigarettes. I went to the store and there was, a, you know, right. it was excrement on the, on the street I had to bypass. And I mean, you, people say that Beckett's writing is a religious experience if you can get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, his novels, not yeah. his, not his plays, but his, and like, you know, there's, there's, this is a scene from in Nausgaard's book five, where he says, I walk, down into the town center and bought records, drank coffee in the cake shops, old people frequented, where I didn't care how I looked or what impression I made or if people wondered why I was on my own. I didn't give a shit about old people and I didn't give a shit about myself either. I sat there studying the records, reading books, drinking coffee and smoking. Then I walked home, killed time, went to bed, another day dawned. The week, and then this is the shift, because he's talking about very mundane stuff, but then he says, the weekdays were no problem. The weekends were more difficult. At two or three in the afternoon, the urge to go out and have fun like other students slowly made itself felt. At six or seven o'clock, it became acute, this feeling. They were preloading all around me while I sat alone. At eight or nine, it felt better. Soon I would be able to go to bed and occasionally something would hold my attention, a book or my writing to make me forget time and the situation. And the next time I checked, my watch said it could be 12, 1 or 2. That was good. For then I could sleep in longer the following morning, thereby shortening the day. I mean, he's mm. incredibly shy. He's incredibly alone. He's basically trying to make time pass. Yeah. I mean, it's pathetic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of time passing, we're coming up to the end here, but I've got, let's do the, I've got five okay. more of these, fair or right. Let's do them rapid fire. You could just okay. give me a... Uh, a fair or unfair. Uh, quote, this wonderful book will gradually worm its way into your heart in the same way a small child does. Uh, fair. Okay. Uh, this is, without a doubt, the most boring, dull, and self-absorbed book I have ever opened. After 100 pages, I realize that people who find this captivating are probably mostly millennials who believe the entire world wants to see more pictures of their friends, their dogs, and their drinks on Facebook. I just have to counter that with a quote <laughs> by Zadie Smith. Okay. Which is, what's notable is his ability rare these days to be fully present in and mindful of his own ex existence. Every detail is put down without apparent vanity or decoration, mm -hmm. as if the writing and the living are happening simultaneously. Yeah. There shouldn't be anything remarkable about any of it, except for the fact that it immerses you totally. You live his life with him. Yeah. I had that, uh, uh, that's similar to a note I had made when I was sort of thinking through the differences between him and someone like Updike, is that with Nausgaard, we're not thinking about him as a writer with a capital W, but almost more like a typist, someone who's recording things fast and his observations and his feelings and his responses to the things around him are something that we yeah. can participate in. He's like a reliable narrator. What's the hearsay? Is there a hearsay exception for a excited utterance or, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, he doesn't have time to, it feels like he doesn't have time to lie. I think it's, you know, back what I was saying before, I think it's incredibly hard to write like this. Mm, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's an easy thing. I mean, he, he actually, he talks in his books about reading, I forget if he's a Swedish diarist, but there was a diarist who wrote something like 9,000 pages. Yeah. And Nausgaard read all of it. And I, I, I feel like that's how he got the idea right. of it. 
Right. Um, well, he's got to keep digging into himself to do it in a way yeah. that's interesting. Like it isn't just pictures of his friends and his dogs and their drinks on Facebook. He's 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 opening up a vein here too. He's giving us his honest uh, human response to those things, which is not easy to always do. Yeah, I, I don't. I haven't found a lot of millennials who've even heard of him. I think if anything, <laughs> it requires incredible patience. Yeah. To read. You know, as right, someone told right. me recently, uh, a millennial told me recently that he tried to read Mrs. Dalloway and he went to sleep. Yeah. So I thought, right. you know, if you can't if you can't get into Mrs. Dalloway, then there's a fundamental difference between you and me. Because <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, Mrs. Dalloway is is just you know a crazy good book. If I <laughs> so. Okay. Fair or unfair? Quote, the best first-person novel since Catcher in the Rye. I think it's fair. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Not just that it's generous, but you would agree with that. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, next one. If Nosgaard really thought that time is precious, he would have a little more respect for ours. To ask us to devote 100 hours of our lives, 120 hours, to reading about his own... Mm-hmm. His own life is to make a promise that my struggle does not even try to fulfill. But we do have a choice. After all, we do not have to read the thing. Here's my response to that. (laughs) I think many people waste a lot of their lives. Mm. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, They're on Facebook. They're looking at pictures of their friends and their dogs. They're reading the newspaper. I mean, they're they're doing ostensibly cultural things, but they're it's forgettable right you know they, they drink themselves silly making conversation about uh you know what they saw online yeah i mean there yeah, dave foster wallace is instructive on this point he says that there is actually a lot of time hmm. there's yeah. it's, it's incredible amounts of time people he just, just said, waste it yeah people so he said people like write lists instead of actually doing the thing people make plans instead of actually meeting the person. I mean, yeah. there's, so if you can spend a hundred hours reading this book, you can probably spend 10,000 hours doing really stupid shit. Mm. Or yeah. it might be, I always attribute this to sting. I'm sure it was told by a lot of other people, but I had heard this when I was young and it was the first time I had ever thought about it. Someone was saying sting was telling them they should meditate or that he meditates every day. And they, someone uh-huh. else said, you know, I just never, uh, uh, I just don't have the time for it. And he said, it'll make time. It'll, it'll, mm-hmm. you'll be more present and alert the rest of the day. And you'll realize that you're, you're maximizing your time doing that. Yeah. I mean, to that person about the hundred hours, if you're not reading Nausgaard and you're reading something that you love, you know, not to sound like a sap, but I think that I'm all in favor of that. But if you're spending that hundred hours, you know, um, looking at pleated pants online for like, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the, you know, I think what I urge people who struggle to find time to read is um go internet free mm. for an evening yeah i used to say for a weekend but i find that people like look at me so they won't do it yeah. yeah but they'll try it for an evening and they'll report back to me and say wow it felt so cool <laughs> i've heard about yeah i've heard about um new year's resolutions that people will have 
apps and things that will uh, limit your time on social media. And uh-huh. they'll say, like, you get one hour a day. Yeah. And then you give the password to your spouse or your your uh, significant other or something. So you can't change it. And right. then you try to, you know, you maybe or maybe it's 90 minutes or maybe it's 45 minutes or whatever would sort of limit you enough that mm-hmm. you um, you're not just kind of casually doing it throughout the day and letting the minutes just slip by and, and something yeah. like that. OK, so, so I, I only look at ESPN right before I go to sleep. Right. It's, so it's you don't either, need to do it all day. You can just catch sleep, up on everything then. Yeah, it's sleep or ESPN. Right. Okay. Fair or unfair? Last one. Nausgaard <laughs> is, quote, a very disturbed man, end quote. I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he has this, he, he has so many little moments where he says something like, I don't like to socialize. I don't get anything out of it. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> he says, "You why do you, why do people like to socialize? You never say what you want to say, and you always agree with what people are saying. The ones who have the courage to speak, you always agree with them." Right. And I think like, yeah, it's like it's so true at the office canteen. I mean, nobody it's so hard to break out of to disagree everybody you know it's like likes and you know yeah whatever well, happens I mean, like letting it lie when i read uh Chekhov, i think this guy was a better human being than me he's someone i could aspire to be and yeah. i don't get that feeling when i read nausgaard <laughs> i think this guy had a really interesting project he's done this for us he's sacrificed for us but i don't read it thinking um He's got a better grip on life than I do, or he's got a yeah. greater soul than I do. Yeah, my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter asked me the other day, because she, she, she sees me reading him all the time. She said, if you could be friends with him, would you want to be friends with Carl Ove? <laughs> <laughs> What's your answer? Well, I say yes, but yeah, I, right. I guess I'm confident in my ability to to somehow force him to socialize and like me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last question. Do you have to love literature to enjoy this, that there's a pleasure here that comes from seeing what he's up to as a novel and how you're fitting it into the history of the novel or to to recognize the differences between this and more conventional novels? Or do you think I, general yeah. readers can also pick it up and enjoy it? I th- I think you have to love literature. I think it's something like Thomas Bernard. Mm. I mean, I was looking yeah. at Extinction the other day because I I own you know own a copy of it, but I never read it. Mm-hmm. And it I re- it dawned on me that it's a single paragraph. It's it's a one paragraph book that's two hundred pages. Yeah. And I just thought that is clearly a fuck you to the general reader. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like it's like I'm Thomas Bernard. Who are you? Yeah. And yeah. it, and it's maybe appealing to uh, literature fans who will say, "Oh, let's." It's like a high wire act, you know. It's yeah. uh, let's see what this novel. Let's see if he can pull it off. Let's see if general readers don't care about that. Yeah, um, so now that's one of Nausgaard's favorite novels. Mm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> of course. Okay. Well, let's leave things there, yeah. Mike. As always, thank you for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack.
Ready to read some NASCAR now? I think I am. I think I might commit. Mike has persuaded me. My thanks to him, of course, for joining me. I know you hate it when he's not in the show for a while. So we'll try to have him back soon. Here's the problem. He prepares. It takes him a while. And then the scheduling, etc., etc., and finding the right night, etc., etc., etc. We have a friendship. It's nine parts literature and one part, etc. And the etc. is extremely demanding. I think the etc. is jealous of the literature. And so it pouts and whines and pleads and plots against us. Etc. is our enemy. The enemy of literature. The enemy of this podcast. And I've tried... Maybe maybe I should kill it. Maybe I should sneak up on etc. at night while it's sleeping. Sneak into its room. A pillow in my hand. There it is in bed, unsuspecting. Dreaming its etc. dreams. Murmuring with self-importance. And I could just take the pillow and lay it across that face. Die, etc. Die. Trouble me no more. Leave me free to talk literature with my friend. Let me live unencumbered in the land of pure thought. And the sirens rise in the distance. The camera fades to black slowly to emphasize the futility of what I have just done. I've killed etc. But the authorities do not want it. They do not share my goals. I have violated sacred norms. I am not an Uberman. Flying above the restrictions that apply to other people. I am not beyond etc.'s reach. I haven't even killed etc. There's always more standing by. Ready to replace. It's kind of the point of the term, isn't it? It's right there in the name. It's infinite. I failed to see what murdering etc. would do. And in the end, after I am sufficiently tortured, I will see the light. I will love etc. The only master I am permitted, the only master I shall ever truly know, and my solace, such as it is, is that I am not alone. I am among the ranks of humanity, slaves to the great Lord, etc., dancing to etc.'s tune, breathing etc.'s air, subsisting on etc.'s nourishment, etc., etc., and of course, always etc., I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll etc. you next, etc.